Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weissman. On today's show, we take a deeper look at the British election to be held on June 8th. Conservative Prime Minister Theresa May called the snap election to broaden her majority in Parliament, but things don't always turn out as planned. And Labour's Jeremy Corbyn is closing in, making this a very tight election, and one that is seeing a resurgence in class politics from the left. We speak to journalist and author Paul Mason in London, and then blogger and analyst Kevin Ovenden in Athens. All this and more on Jacobin Radio in just a moment. Theresa May called a general election for the 8th of June, claiming that the opposition parties were jeopardizing her government's preparations for Brexit. Now, remember that she was in favor of a hard Brexit. And when she called the election in late April, the conservatives were polling 21 points ahead of Labor. That's no longer the case as Jeremy Corbyn, Labor's candidate, has surged in the polls. Currently, the conservatives have 330 members of parliament, giving the party its working majority of 17. Labor has 229. We'll see what's going to happen, and we're going to speak first to Paul Mason and then Kevin Ovenden. Paul Mason, formerly the economics editor for BBC's Newsnight, is now a weekly Guardian columnist and freelancer, a regular blogger at Mosquito Ridge. He's written five books. The most recent is Post-Capitalism. His previous book, Why It's Still Kicking Off Everywhere, is now a play on the London stage, and he's produced a film on Syriza that he covered called Hashtag This Is A Coup. Paul Mason, what is the state of play in the election? The Independent today says that Corbyn is surging in London, but what's the rough breakdown around the country? So when the election started five weeks ago, Labour was trailing really badly. They were on about 25 points, and Theresa May was close to 50. Since then, I think it's fair to say that Corbyn has slowly built up something of a head of steam of momentum and we are now seeing the gap between the two parties could be as small in some polls as three or four points that still puts the conservatives in the lead it still means they're gonna win the election but there are five six days to go yet and with things changing so dramatically even really mainstream commentators are now unwilling to predict the outcome and the, the issue is, of course, this was what we call in England a snap election. It was an unscheduled election called by Theresa May, the, the existing prime minister, to try and enhance her power. She needs to do the equivalent of taking Congress. It looks like she can't. So it's all down to the fight that the left has put up. So when Theresa May called the election, as you said, in April, she thought that she had the basis for winning a wider margin than she did when she came in in the wake of the Brexit vote, because she had a thin majority then. What's going on now? Okay, so Theresa May almost had to call the election because it became clear that she has a strategy of what we call a hard Brexit. Britain's going to leave the European Union. It's going to leave it on very bad terms. And her negotiating position is that if it doesn't get the terms it wants, she'll walk away without a deal. It became clear that she couldn't pull that off with a narrow majority in Parliament because so many of her own MPs and also we have in Britain a system of checks and balances where the courts are constantly in the last few months ordering Parliament to deliberate on individual issues over Brexit. So she needed a much bigger majority. Now, we are hopeful that we can win 
on the Labour side. If we don't win, we are hopeful that we can achieve what is called a hung parliament, where there's no overall control. Mm -hmm. If we achieve that, she's lost. Because her aim was to kind of add another hundred to that 12-person majority. I, I think right now it looks like there's no way she can do that. And the reason is, first of all, the left has fought a very inspirational campaign appealing to the the ordinary principles of working-class voters. And Theresa May herself chose to make it almost presidential, just like, trust me, give me more power, mm. and, yet, and then disappeared because she's terrified that she's going to mess up in the debates. This is really interesting. You mentioned that Labour is mounting an, an excellent campaign. Who's organizing Corbyn's campaign? We've seen momentum. But what about, you know, the struggle that we saw leading into literally Corbyn's election to the leadership, a very strong fight between the Parliamentary Labour Party and Corbyn? How is that influencing this election, if it is at all? Well, when they were trailing badly in the polls, the two-thirds of Labour's parliamentary group that don't really support Corbyn decided basically just to save themselves, run local campaigns, don't mention Corbyn, and try and survive with the kind of loyal, basic working-class vote. But then what happened is that Corbyn unleashed a manifesto that shocked everybody. I think it's of world significance because Labour is part of a big social democratic family of parties in Europe here and elsewhere. And it's the first of those big mainstream parties to actually stand in an election and say, you know what, neoliberalism is over. The free market is over. We're going to tax the rich, we're going to nationalize key industries, and we're going to redistribute the wealth to the poorest. That's what it said. And I've been saying that for many people aged 50 and above, it was like rediscovering a vinyl record you really liked. <laughs> You'd forgotten how much you liked it. And when they did that, of course, the excitement began to build, above all, among young people, because one of the key promises, college fees here are £9,000 per year. Mm. Um, so you leave college with £27,000 debt. Corbyn has promised to just wipe that out. He's just said zero from September. that You go to university for free. And now you've seen probably up to a million young people register, the, register to vote on the basis of that. So once that excitement began, people began to come on side and come online from the right wing of the Labour Party. And who's responsible for, for organising uh, the, the campaign? It is the tight group around Corbyn himself of veteran uh, left socialist operatives inside the trade unions, inside the Labour left, journalists, etc. That's who did it. Um, we, we don't know whether we can win because the, the other side of this is that the... You know, we had a very liberal conservative party. We had a conservative party, many of whom could have been in the U.S. Democrats. But after Brexit, it flipped to the right. And we also had, on about 12%, an, an alt-right party called UKIP, mm. uh, an anti-immigration, xenophobic, racist party, um, joining support from some working-class people, it has to be said as well. Now, their vote has collapsed. As the conservatives have swung right. The, UKIP has basically kind of melted into the Conservatives. It's standing down in 30 key seats to try and help the Conservatives defeat Labour. So um, it's a really uphill task in this one election straight after Brexit to, for Labour to, to win. But I think if we can do really well and if we can achieve some kind of parity with the Conservatives, then it, it empowers Corbyn to take Labour's transformation to the next level. An economic report last week said that Britain was doing the worst of any economy in Europe. What is the state of the economy and how is that affecting this election? You've no, I have to say the state of the economy is not really affecting the election because we had a surge after Brexit, a kind of surge of, uh, of growth, and then that's fallen back now. 
Um, the cost of living is rising because the pound has plummeted because of Brexit. But all these factors take a long while to feed through. What people are sick of is the austerity program. So we're seeing, you know, we had a, a horrific terrorist attack in Manchester two weeks ago. The emergency services clearly struggled in the, in the light of that to maintain resilience in terms of anti-terror activity. So they had to, for the first time in many years, put the army onto the streets. We don't have a National Guard. So you had to put the army directly onto the streets. People looked at that and said, you know, if you cut one-sixth to one-fifth of the police numbers in seven years, which is what the Conservatives did, this is what you end up doing. You know, we, we don't have an armed police force, but we have an armed contingent within the cops. There's, you know, 2,000 of those were sacked in the last seven years. So people are saying, hold on a minute, whose fault is this? So... You know, it's the sickness over austerity. It's the school budget cuts. It's the it's the continued erosion of of, of the quality of healthcare that people are really sick about. And what about though immigration? Because that played such a huge role in Brexit. Do people still blame immigrants for the economic situation? You know, people blamed immigrants in a different kind of way than they do in the United States. It was all about the economic impact. I. East European migrants, these white Christian people, remember, are undercutting our wages. And they voted for Brexit, those who did, to try and stop that. Now, I think that sentiment is still there. But uh, as we always say, you can't eat racism. You know, <laughs> it, doesn't put any money, it doesn't put any money in your pocket. Right. It doesn't put any food on the table. I think where numbers of working class people are still going to vote Tory and Conservatives, or even for UKIP, the 4 or 5% who've stuck with them, that is the primary motivation. But remember, Britain is, by and large, like the United States, is a country of salaried people, of educated, you know, an educated workforce, of big cities, um, and it is here that Labour is absolutely strong at the moment. But, you know, we, it's a culture war, the same as in the United States. And what you cannot do, you cannot give an inch in the culture war. Because even if you wanted to, even if Labour wanted to appeal to xenophobia and racism, all that would happen is that tens of thousands of its own members would leave and join the Green Party. And just so it can't. And of course, we don't want to. Paul, let's just switch for a minute back to the impact of Brexit and turn to Scotland. Scotland was always the base of the Labour Party. And now the Labour Party in Scotland is quite right wing and really is discredited. And the SNP is is in the ascendancy. Can Labour win without Scotland? I don't think Labour can ever win without Scotland. That's the problem. And Scotland, for your listeners, is a, is a nation of six million people. It is quite prosperous. It has an oil uh, supply. It has high tech. It has a big cultural left nationalism going on. And I think it's inevitable over the next 10, 20 years, it will become independent from the United Kingdom. Mm. However, what has happened now is that in addition to the Labour Party being a, a little bit to the right of Corbyn, it's not massively to the right of Corbyn, the, the issue is in or out of the United Kingdom. And mm. The Conservatives have been very clear, you know, they're against Scotland breaking away. The Scottish Nationalists, who are a left Nationalist party, have said they want to break away. And Labour is kind of in the middle. And now it's going to, so it's been squeezed from the Nationalist left, and now it's getting squeezed from the pro-British right. I sometimes say with the Scottish Labour Party wants to stand against the cultural nationalism of some people in Scotland and stand against the sort of extreme conservative unionism of others and Brexit. In that sense, it's, it's against two forces of history and it doesn't have a third force to rely on itself. But from the point of view of the British government, it barely matters. All that matters is an anti-Tory majority. 
And the sad thing is that Labour had to suspend a local town council recently in Scotland mm. because its councillors wanted to make a block with the Conservatives against the Nationalists. Yeah. At this point, that's where it gets crazy. And it will, let's say, if Corbyn could somehow come in and there's a hung parliament, then the question would be, would Nicola Sturgeon block with Labour or would she just do it on issue by issue? They've said they'll do it issue by issue. There's no way the Scottish Nationalists could ever support a Conservative government. So Labour, in that sense, has them at a tactical advantage. If Labour were to be the largest party, the Scottish Nationalists were saying... Uh, we'll do it on an, on an issue-by-issue basis, that's fine, but then Labour would just publish a list of the issues, and then you've got a government. It's all complicated by the fact that Labour and Labour's mass base and Labour's majority of its parliamentarians are very pro-keeping our trident nuclear deterrent, but the Scots are very against it, and that matters because the deterrent is based in Scotland. So this has geopolitical ramifications mm. uh, that I think would make it quite difficult for Labour and the SNP to form any kind of a coalition. Very interesting. Paul, I know you have to go very soon, but I (laughs) wanted to ask, The Guardian came out in a strong editorial for Labour today, and apparently uh, this afternoon uh, Ed Miliband nearly endorsed Corbyn. So maybe, (laughs) how much significance will that have on the election itself? The Guardian is a big influence, and it has to be said that both its comment writers and its news editorial stance has been about as pro-Corbyn as the New York Times was pro-Bernie Sanders, i.e. not. <laughs> not. Um, <laughs> and, and for the same reasons, this is the liberal elite, it's, the, it's, the, it's people who don't like old-style socialism, uh, all the identity politics of, around Corbyn, they're different than the ones they were about around Sanders, but they were there. Lots of sort of mainstream feminists don't like Corbyn, all of that. But in the end, I think what has happened is that Corbyn has proved you can run a traditional left campaign and energize young people. And the other possibility is so dire, a right-wing conservative and racist UKIP alliance type government. And the Guardian, who, which I write for, has had this penchant for a sort of centrist party to emerge, um, a little bit like Emmanuel Macron in Paris, or a little bit like it would be in a kind of Clintonite Democrat kind of paper by its emotional centre. But that kind of politics has collapsed in Britain. And the Liberal Democrats, who are the small third party here, just have really not done anything. I'm afraid the reason for this is that Brexit still, it's reset politics in Britain. I'm surprised that we're doing so well on the left. We may not get there in this moment. But what is certain is that we will be able to say, people in America still have to say, well, Bernie would have won. But the other aspect of this is, even if Bernie had have lost, the question would have been, what kind of movement do you leave behind? What kind of ground war can you prepare, prepare over the next four years in America, this is what the convention in Chicago is going to be about, I hope. And I think we'll be in the same position if we lose. We'll be incredibly confident. That's really good. And in fact, Bernie Sanders was just in the UK and spoke to huge crowds expressing his support for Corbyn. Paul, I know you have to go. What's the chances that your play, why it's kicking off everywhere, <laughs> will migrate from the London stage to the US stage? My play is about 2011 and the Occupy movement and the Arab Spring, and it's actually hopefully going to be shown by the people who commissioned it, which is BBC Television, on TV. And after that, it will be available across the world, I hope, as a kind of somewhere on some cable channel. But according to British television rules, which I'm sure will be very different to the American TV rules, nothing of of that kind can be shown during an election by a public broadcaster. So we're waiting until after the election to find out when the play is scheduled to be on TV. 
Paul Mason, thanks so much. Yeah, take care. Okay. Paul Mason is a Weekly Guardian columnist, former BBC economics editor, filmmaker, and author, and he's been speaking to us from London. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. We're going to come right back with Kevin Ovenden in Athens. Welcome. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're continuing our discussion on the British election that is called for the 8th of June. Theresa May called this as she's the prime minister who came in in the wake of Brexit and has since then championed a hard Brexit. When she called the election, the conservatives were way ahead, at least 21 points ahead of Labour. But that's not the case any longer, as Jeremy Corbyn has been surging in the polls. Kevin Ovenden is joining us. He's a blogger and the author of Syriza, Inside the Labyrinth. He divides his time between London and Athens and is in Athens today. And we're going to discuss the surge for Jeremy Corbyn, what this all means, and everything you want to know about the election. Kevin Ovenden, thanks for joining us again. Nice to be here, Susie. Thank you. Well, maybe we should just start with the lay of the land, given that The Guardian today came out endorsing Jeremy Corbyn. Ed Miliband, apparently in his daily or, or weekly podcast, came out almost endorsing Corbyn. And as I said in the introduction, the lay of the land has changed. How do you see it? Well, it's changed dramatically. Shortly after the election had been, had been called, so it must be a month and a half ago, at that time, we were discussing the gap in the opinion polls, which to an extent reflected a year and a half of systematic hostility, not just from the bulk of the uh, mainstream media, but from the establishment class more generally against Jeremy Corbyn. But what's happened in the course of the last five or six weeks is that the more people have seen of Jeremy Corbyn, the more people have rallied to the Labour side. Secondly, against all of what we were told for a period of possibly a generation from the early uh, 1990s through to 2008, which is that politics is gravitating towards the centre, so Blair Clintonism, that the big ideological questions are dead, the big political divide is dead, and that certainly we had gone beyond left and right. That's just come crashing down in Britain in the last five weeks, I mean, quite spectacularly so. Jeremy Corbyn and Labour are ahead by about five points in London. The polls vary a lot. We can perhaps discuss why they're so variable in Britain, even more so than in the uh, United States. But all of them show a narrowing of the gap, which, were it to continue, does not rule out the Labour Party winning the general election on the 8th of June. I'm not predicting that, but what is certainly incontrovertible is that putting a clear position that ordinary people didn't cause the crisis, it was the bankers. The people to blame are not migrants coming to this country. It's the eight billionaires who own more than half the wealth of the, uh, the bottom half of the population in Britain. These kind of arguments. The, the state can be used to redistribute wealth for productive investment, for sustainable growth, for redressing the social crisis in Britain, which is acute, uh, for older people, for younger people, nearly four million children living in poverty now, the crisis of the National Health Service and so on. These arguments are really connecting with people. Now, what remains to be seen is how many of those layers who 
cumulatively over the past 30 years have been disinclined to vote because they've not felt there's a point, uh, they've not felt anybody's speaking for them. These are disproportionately poorer and working class people, and they're also disproportionately younger people. So we have a big age imbalance in, in who has historically voted in the last 25 years in Britain. So it remains to be seen how that will play out on election day. But if these layers that are moving with some enthusiasm to the campaign actually go out and vote, then we could be in for a fantastic surprise. Well, that's really good. And I know that when Theresa May came in, she shocked everybody by kind of adopting a somewhat compassionate conservative program that she's called various things like social care. And then it seems promptly just turned around on that issue. Is that part of what you're talking about, that austerity and the economic situation and the fact that so many people have been left behind are to account for Corbyn's surge? It is, and the uh, the observation you make about when Theresa May came in, I think I mean, some of us made this point at the time, and it's now clearer to hundreds of thousands, millions of uh, voters in Britain, that this talk of repositioning the Conservative Party to be a party of working people, a kind of hint at economic nationalism along the Trump mould, given that Britain is leaving the European Union and so on, what struck a number of us about it at the time was that it had, from Theresa May, no conviction behind it and no plan, even if that were to be a plan. It was purely a political repositioning exercise because the Brexit vote had happened. It had exposed this great discontent at the base of society. People left behind from not just the crisis years since 2008, but the so-called good years of neoliberal globalisation running up to that, people who in former industrial areas in the United States, you call it the Rust Belt, feeling, not just feeling left behind, really left behind. And that in the United States, life expectancy falling for uh, women and, uh, and men in those uh, areas. Is it also the case that there's falling. a lot of drug addiction like here? That's absolutely the case. I was reading an article just the other day, actually, you know, the, the, uh, the opioid epidemic, uh, Oxycontin and so on. We had that in areas where I grew up, uh, in Yorkshire, uh, in the north of England, uh, with the deindustrialization of the, the 1980s, uh, heroin addiction, other forms of uh, class A drugs that people take to desperately try to escape from reality and become uh, dependent on. That has been uh, very, very widespread. You had... In a sense, it wasn't alleviated but masked in that a newer generation could find jobs, but they could find jobs on low pay and without the prospects of some kind of social and community structures that their parents and grandparents had had. So this has been building up for, for 30 years in Britain. And so what you have is a kind of existential election in Britain. This is be, the various journalists are saying this isn't a normal election. Well, they're, they're only comparing it with what have been fairly anodyne elections. This is an election like 1945, after the Second World War. It's an election like 1970 or 74. It's an election like 1979 or like 1997. In other words, it pitches two great directions about where society is going to go. And that's a big social feeling. Now, in that, what is 
of dramatic significance is that one of those two poles is represented by a Tory party, which is essentially the same old Tory party, but with this adaptation to economic uh, nationalist talk on uh, the basis of the, the Brexit vote last year, but not much more than that, to be honest. Nothing in terms of a coherent direction. That's one pole. The other pole is the Labour Party, which is being seen once again as essentially the party of working men and working women. But its leader is the most left-wing leader that uh, the Labour Party has had since George Lansbury in the 1930s. And so you have a return of left and right, of social democracy versus an outright capitalist party. But in that, you have somebody, and around him, a group of people who are connected with a much more radically left vision about how things can progress, which is rooted in the idea of popular mobilization. In the French election, you could say that Le Pen failed to win rather than was defeated. But given that and Trump's victory here and his governing, if that's what you want to call it, is it fair to say that there's been any impact on the British voter? Or is it something peculiarly insular and just about British politics? No, it's not just about British politics and the Trump-Theresa May connection is working against her to a significant extent. Donald Trump's never been popular in Britain, and certainly not after he was uh, elected. And the recent news in pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, that's been accompanied online and in all sorts of reference points with images of Theresa May holding hands with him and people saying, look, you're supposed to have this special relationship with the President of the United States, and yet you can't sign the complaint which came from other European leaders over Trump pulling the U.S. out of the climate accords. So that's worked against um, Theresa May. On the more general point, I think that, oh, the way I put it is this, in December of last year, lots of international pundits were saying, look, the election in France will be between François Fillon, who's to the right of Macron. Macron is a liberal, and Fillon is a, a hard-right conservative, between him and the fascist Le Pen, that the right wing is growing everywhere, the hard right. The Tory government will be strong. The Labour Party will collapse. And that Donald Trump will, as you would say, will govern or at least govern strongly. Well, all of these things have been thrown up in the air, and I think the reason is, is that we're not seeing, we weren't seeing in France, or in, indeed in the United States, and we're certainly not seeing in Britain, some inexorable shift to the right, shift to nativism, shift to popular racism and xenophobia. Those things are there. But on the other side of the picture is a radicalisation to the left, class polarization in social terms and I'd put it like this where the left can gather itself to be a national credible force as has happened under Jeremy Corbyn then it can have a huge impact on the outcome of politics Britain is not insular it's an island but it's not insular in this respect I would place it on a spectrum of other developments
Well, one thing you've mentioned, Kevin Ovenden, over and over again in these responses is that it's kind of the return of not just left-wing politics, but class politics. Now, you could also say that class politics have been there the whole time, and that's why you got people moving to the far right, because they were responding to the class politics, even though the program is, we see, barely lip service. And so... How is this reflected now in Britain in this surging support for Corbyn? Because as you said, he's the labor leader, the furthest to the left since at least the 1930s. Well, by class politics, I'd put it uh, in two ways. One, a basic Zamenhof class sentiment. It's not difficult to describe it, and it's not difficult to, to feel it when you look at the incredible amounts of wealth that have gone up to the not so much 1%, but 0.1%. So there's a basic class sentiment and a sense that life is difficult and for younger generations coming after us, it's getting more difficult. But in the political sense, I'd say it's an interesting development and it's quite modern class politics. So more than half the labour force in, 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 in Britain now in many industries is female. And That was going to be my next question. Shit, yeah, one of the biggest shifts uh, powering the uh, the surge around Jeremy and the, the Labour Party is a movement of, of women voters, disproportionately working-class women voters. Also, that's very pronounced amongst uh, black and minority ethnic voters. It's pronounced amongst all those people in society who face some additional uh, form of disadvantage or oppression. So that's kind of bundled up when you talk about the class politics. I mean, uh, if I can give you just one anecdote which sums it up brilliantly. The shadow education secretary for the Labour Party, who, if Labour were to win an election, would be uh, in charge of education, schools and universities, is a woman called Angela Rayner. Angela Rayner is a working class woman. She left school at 16 and she had a baby at 16. Mm. Uh, She never went to university. She was a home help, so that meant she cared for disabled and elderly people in their homes, joined the Labour Party, became political, got a degree part-time, and is now a top-flight politician. And in a sense, Angela Rayner sums up the feeling of very large numbers of people. It's unfair, just because you didn't go to university, you know, at the age of 18 and got all these letters after your name, doesn't mean to say that you don't count. Uh, you can achieve something, you're just as good as anybody else. So that kind of sense against the class system, but also, uh, in this instance, against the patriarchal system and against the, the sneer at working class people. Well, Kevin, you know, this is a very important issue that you bring up. Women traditionally were thought of as conservative, docile, and, you know, for the status quo. But what you're saying is women are in the forefront, something that we saw a century ago as well. But given that Theresa May, last I saw, is still a woman, could we say that identity politics don't hold sway over class politics in Britain? Well, yeah. I mean, if we wanted to put it in that opposition, I'd say, yes, they don't hold sway. And uh, on one level, if you really wanted a good thought experiment, as it were, or a thought experiment brought to real life about what's the difference between a radical, transformative politics of women's liberation on the one hand and having a woman in a position of political authority on the other, then having... The Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn with people like Angela Rayner and generating this enthusiasm 
on the one hand, versus a woman who leading the Tory party with a cabinet of millionaires, a woman who has put through in legislation the fact that after a third child, in order to gain benefits, the woman would have to prove that the child was the product of being raped if what? she wanted to get benefits. My God. It's an absolutely incredible piece of legislation. This is from the Tory party, which is led by a woman. Now, one thing that's very interesting is that there's no kind of sexist or misogynist rhetoric directed against Theresa May, which is very good. I think people see her as a Tory. When I say people see her, one of the running jokes of this campaign is that she's avoided virtually all contact with ordinary people. She's avoided any head-to-head debate with Jeremy Corbyn. And it's like she's being imperious. She called the election, having said she wouldn't call the election. She had a 25-point lead, which is now being fitted away. She thinks that uh, she ought to be there almost by divine right, as if by divine right of the monarchy. And it's going down very, very badly. But it's not at all to do with the fact that she's a woman. It's to do with the fact that she kind of concentrates a lot of the... It's not just the inequality, it's a lot of the outright class snobbery of the people who run Britain. This is a really important point, Kevin Ovenden. And and as you mentioned, her lead was substantial in the beginning. But maybe we should just talk for a moment about the campaign, because Corbyn was seen as kind of lackluster as well. He may have had great politics, but not great at, you know, being a messenger for those politics, people were saying over the summer, especially at the time of that really kind of vicious fight that he held within the Labour Party and within the Parliamentary Labour Party. But he's come out ahead of her. And as you mentioned, she's reluctant to get into a debate and they're having separate question times and that sort of thing. What can you say about Corbyn's campaign and and who organized it? And maybe you should stress for our listeners on this side of the Atlantic what his chances are. Well, I've known Jeremy for 25 years and he's always been at his best when he's outside of what we call the Westminster bubble. Uh, The equivalent, I guess, would be outside of the Beltway. Mm -hmm. Talking with uh, people, uh, campaigning. He, You know, some politicians have to uh, pretend to listen, and some of them can be very good at it. I remember Bill Clinton was extremely, was a fantastic actor. Mm. Um, Jeremy doesn't have to pretend to do that. When he's with people, his genuineness completely, uh, completely comes through. And so... What's happened in the course of the election is, uh, is actually quite interesting. Is When an election's called, the MPs are out of Parliament, but also the rules of the Labour Party are that kind of power devolves to the election team around the leadership. So funnily enough, all of that nastiness from last year, the noises of the attempts by other MPs to, to get rid of him, that was pushed to one side by the rules of the Labour Party, which concentrated power decision-making in the hands of the leadership for the duration of the campaign. What that's enabled is uh, Jeremy, Diane Abbott, John McDonnell, Angela Rayner, Emily Thornbury, a number of, of people of the left who are from the core of the leadership, to be much less impeded by uh, noises off from uh, right-wing or Blairite uh, MPs who've been back in their constituencies having to fight for their votes. So, A, he's been able 
uh, with others to put forward a very, very good manifesto with some radical social democratic measures. B, they've been able to conduct a campaign which both plays to this, his strengths, but also I think is the right campaign to conduct, one of mass rallies, one of getting out to speak to people rather than uh, funneling it through a very controlled and biased media. And the third thing is done is that it's turned upside down the Tory election strategy, which was this. It was to rely upon the constant denigration by the establishment of the media and sections of the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn and to say, look, this guy's yeah, useless, you, you've read it all in the papers, he's uh, going nowhere, and it's him versus the strong imperial Theresa May. Well, actually what's happened is people have seen more and more of Jeremy Corbyn and of the policies and of the style of campaigning are really liking it. And the more they see of Theresa May, or rather the more they see that she's not prepared to be seen and to answer questions, the more they don't like it. So you have this uh, crisis in the Tory campaign this weekend. I'm not saying that they will lose necessarily. They still are ahead. But there's a crisis in the campaign in that they'd run the campaign to be back Theresa May, as if it was a U.S. presidential campaign, you know, mm. not a British parliamentary campaign for... Uh, hundreds of MPs, but as if it were for a single person. It was back Theresa May, and now Theresa May's name is getting smaller and smaller and smaller on the propaganda that's going on. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, a very difficult situation for them. Maybe you should explain again for listeners this side of the Atlantic how leaders are chosen there and, and whether or not, just very briefly, if the Tory majority is reduced substantially, will she have to resign and they'll elect another leader? Parties choose their leaders by whatever processes. Uh, the Labour Party, it's uh, by one member, one vote, and that's how Jeremy was elected uh, twice with an overwhelming mandate. Uh, the Prime Minister is the person in the House of Commons, of which there are 650 MPs, who can command a majority. So essentially, uh, one or other party has to get over 323 MPs, there or thereabouts, to form a government, or they can form a minority government with other parties uh, supporting them or possibly a coalition. But that's how we end up with a prime minister. You have to have the majority in the legislature to be the leader, so it's not like a presidential system. Theresa May currently, or the outgoing parliament, had a majority of 13, one three MPs. If that were to fall by one, I believe she'd have to go because she called this election to strengthen her hand. She called it with a big majority in the opinion polls, but it's been losing throughout the course of the uh, election. But also she called it to strengthen her hand against other factional rivals inside the Tory party. And they will pounce upon, I would say, not even just if she loses some seats, but if she fails to gain a significant advance on the 13 she had before, I think she'll be in serious trouble because it was her decision, it was her campaign. They have been running a presidential campaign, even though we don't have a presidential system. We have mm. this parliamentary system I just explained. And therefore, anybody with a grievance inside the Tory party will, I think, take it out very, very uh, heftily 
if uh, Theresa May does not do well. Just finally, do you think this will end up with a hung parliament or do you think that a surprise, you know, that we're in for a surprise and, and somehow Corbyn could actually win this? There's a, a big range of possibilities. There was a, a poll which was predicting a hung parliament. People should know that we have six, 650 constituencies, sort of like congressional districts, but they're quite small. And so a national share of vote can be unevenly distributed around the country. The second factor is that in Scotland, the Scottish National Party is now the dominant party. Mm. So it's quite difficult, extremely difficult, actually, for Labour to form a majority government of its own, um, given the position of, in Scotland of the Scottish National Party. A hung parliament is certainly uh, possible. My caution is just... I wouldn't trust anybody who is saying at this stage what the result would be. i tell you one thing that can be guaranteed is that the extraordinary political events we've seen in the course of this election campaign will not come to an end, whatever the result on uh, Thursday. And the reason for that is that they have generated, the Labour campaign has generated, these things we've been talking about, the class feeling, but with a class politics which has restored a kind of radical left against the right. And it's giving people hope. And that will feed into all sorts of other social processes. And uh, we're seeing a rebirth of the political engagement of radicalised working class people in Britain. And that will not end next week. That's a very good note to end this interview, though. Kevin Ovenden, thank you so much. We will call you back to talk about what happened. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm speaking with Kevin Ovenden, blogger and author of Syriza, Inside the Labyrinth, and he is speaking to us from Athens. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.